mention of New Zealand is always painful. <laughs> oh dear. Um, we almost did it, but there we are. Um, how about I pray? Did you ever change allegiance while you were over here? No, okay, right. It was, yeah, you were on a winner all the time. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, yes, the, the joy of uh, fellowship across countries and uh, in Christ that uh, transcends so many things. We thank you for the, the beauty of life with him and life together. Uh, we thank you for the word that brings all this about, the word of the gospel that enables us to uh, be brought back into fellowship with you and with one another. And we pray, please, now as we wrestle with this very word, that you would please um, give us wisdom, help us to see what we ought to see, and help us, please, therefore, know you better and live lives that do please you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 1 to 3 is famously controversial, uh, probably for uh, reasons that are different to the ones I want to talk about. But uh, it's famously controversial. There's a whole kind of things about, you know, what's a day and how do I make sense of the literal things. Tomorrow night, we'll wrestle with some of those. But I want to suggest to you again today that the real controversy is over the things we've been talking about week by week in church, and which is why we've chosen them, actually, to tackle them in church. It's the conflict between the way the Bible sees the world and the way the world sees the world. That's where the controversy is. Uh, the Bible has very clear answers about the way we'd understand the world we live in, and they're fixed. Whereas the world around us has its own answers, uh, but the point of the way the world sees the world and its answers is that they're not fixed. I, um, uh, my, my mother's now in uh, nursing care and so she's 92 and you may know some of the story but so I've been driving up and in Sydney so I've been driving up and down. Yesterday we spent time down there so I, I listened to various things uh, which I don't normally listen to and I was listening to uh, Richard Dawkins debating with George Pell, Cardinal George Pell, the late Card Cardinal and uh, they were debating over the things of uh, God, creation and so on. Richard Dawkins said, famous atheist, he said, or agnostic, whatever you call him, he said, there is no purpose to creation. It is just an accident. You make up your own purpose. Now, that opinion is hugely popular. That we just, we live in a world where we don't know what it's all about. We haven't got a sense of the big thing. And so you just do what you want to do. You make up whatever you want. Whatever purpose, which gives you meaning, but don't judge others for their different meaning. It's about you and what you want. Uh, pursue it your way. The difference is the Bible has very firm answers. Answers that are not malleable. It says there's something about the way the universe is, and it is that way, whether you like it or not. There actually is a purpose, and it's been given to us by a creator who intentionally made us in a certain way, with a certain shape, in a world that's the certain way it is. And those things are fixed, like gravity is fixed. The Bible's not some kind of arbitrary religious document that just says, here's what you must believe if you're going to. It's actually an insight I'm offering. It's an insight into the way things are, which to ignore will bring you in conflict with reality, with the fact of the world with the fact of who you are and with ultimately God himself. So it's bringing us into true insights, not just arbitrary ones imposed on us. And if the Bible's right, and here's the controversy you see, if the Bible is right, then life is not my own to do with as I please. We aren't free to choose whatever purpose we want. It, 
it's been given to us. You see, this cuts to the heart of who we are, which is what we'll be tackling again this week. It cuts to the heart of the, of the massively significant controversy that's in our world. And these three chapters lay the foundations for us uh, by revelation from God uh, about how things are and it, it takes us through chapter by chapter, adding piece by piece. So the first chapter we looked at, chapter one, a couple of weeks ago, God is there, he's there before all things, he is the ultimate reality from which all takes its sense of things, that's just, that's just truth, there it is, God is there, he, he, he created things, uh, not as an emanation of himself but independently of himself, it's, it's um, by his word, by his power, he made it up from nothing, humanity, we're creatures, made in his image, creatures but special. These are insights chapter 1 gives us. Uh, of all the animals, we are unique. Um, here's the, what the Bible saying, reality, gravity, that's the way it is. Chapter 2, men and women are different, equal, made in the image of God, bone of bone but different. Again, this isn't just an arbitrary imposition, it's the fact of who we are. And interestingly, I had this confirmed for me, I was reading about um, one of the Matildas, this last week, there's massive things going on, isn't there, with the, the soccer? Can we call it soccer? Um, the soccer comp. But the, uh, one of the Matildas was saying how, um, uh, how there needs to be more research in women's sport because at the elite level, there's many more injuries that women are dealing with because, she said, we're different. You know, the, women have hips that are different and so the sport and the imposition of sport and elite level and so on and so forth. And we, Now, you know, that is very important for her to say. I'm not having a go at her at all. But the Bible was way before all of us in this. Men and women equal, different. This is not just an arbitrary thing. Precious, important to appreciate all of these. But now we come to chapter 3, which adds a critical insight into the way things are. It adds a piece into what we are as humans, why the world is like it is, how to live wisely in it. Now, what is it in summary? Here it is. We were made to be glorious with dignity, worth, greatness even as God's image bearers. But we are now fallen and broken because of it. That's the picture. Now what I want to do as we go through this is I'm going to take us through the text as we often do to have a quick uh, look at what the passage says and I want to draw your attention therefore to uh, what it teaches about what we are as humans but then I want to look at who is God in all of this and how to practically live given the facts the scriptures draw our attention to. You see where we're going? Let's race through the text, it's very familiar to us. Uh, chapter 3 verse 1, grab your Bibles and have a look at it. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent is finally introduced, we've not heard of this one before, uh, which is important to note actually, we'll come to that tomorrow night, but uh, more crafty than all the wild animals, which, um, which raises questions about creation and the very good of chapter 1. But he goes to the woman, the one formed from the man, which is important to note. He, crafty as he is, he chooses where to go goes to the woman and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Raises a question about the word of God that had been given to Adam and passed on to her. Well, 
she says in response, verse 2, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle and you must not touch it or you will die. So she gives her version, which is slightly different to the command that was given to Adam. It's important to notice this. He creates doubt in her mind and fosters the doubt that perhaps actually might have already been there. That's something of note. But then goes on to actually deny the word. Verse 4, you won't die. God said you will, but you won't. And then verse 5, questions the goodness of God even in giving the command... God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be able to be like him, knowing good and evil. The implication being, um, God didn't really say it, and he hasn't said it for your good, even if he did say it. He's only said it because he doesn't want you to be like him. So there's all kinds of motives that are now questioned. But when she saw, verse 6, that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. And then gave it to her husband who meekly ate it and then everything changed. Um, Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were open, something profound has happened, fear now enters the world. And so verse 8, the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from him. God says, where are you? I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Fear now enters. Their eyes are open. Uh, They hide from each other and they hide from God. It's a tragic scene. God comes looking for his creatures and they've run from him. Now, I don't know, uh, look, people at church with us in all kinds of different contexts, you might be sitting here wondering about the truth of all of these things. I want to actually echo Ben's thoughts, very helpfully put, that one one of the things that's always helped me be confirmed in my convictions about the Christian faith is the kind of writing that we're reading. This This was written three and a half thousand years ago by a primitive man and it is incredibly rich, clever, insightful. In just a few paragraphs, he paints with words an an amazing, insightful analysis of humankind. Now, (laughs) you, you know, I find myself going, either he was a genius or... God inspired him and I'm convinced God inspired. It's an astonishing account that has so much in it we haven't got time to go through it all but everything was changed by this one act. They were then banished, well first the serpent is cursed, Uh, we find this astonishing um, verse 11 response to God's question, who told you? And look at what happens to the man. The man who was made to take responsibility in the forming of a new family and care and provide, what does the man do? He says, none of this is my fault. The woman that you gave me, she made me do it. And there is manhood all down through the centuries. (laughs) The woman said, the serpent deceived me and no one's to blame. God is to blame. 
the Lord calls the serpent and he is cursed and then the woman and then the man. We'll come to that in future weeks. Um, They were banished from the garden, locked out from Eden and the world is now broken. So let me tell you, the point of the passage is to explain who we are, what we are, to explain the greatness and glory of God and to help us in our ongoing battle in this world. There's what I want. Those are the three things we want to tackle. What are we? We're fallen. The change occurred. They were naked and there was no shame. There was no fear. There was the beauty of harmonious, united relationships of equals who were different, coming together with trust, mutual trust, the ability to care and provide and support and the entrusting of themselves to another. There was a beautiful harmony and unity. But after the choice to eat the fruit, fear, shame, the need to hide, loss and devastation occurred. Creation has been impacted. What happened and why did it happen? Well, the key is understanding the fruit. The fruit is mentioned a number of times. Just notice this, it's never called an apple tree. The problem is not apples, just be alert to that. It's given a particular name a number of times. Verse, chapter 2, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. It's called the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It's called that again in chapter 3. Um, and uh, uh, it, uh, it's also, um, what's also alluded to is in eating it, something does happen to the man and woman where they do become like God. Have a look at chapter 3. Um, let me see if verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So that's a very significant phrase, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What does it mean? It's not an apple. Well, historically, there are three views on the meaning of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And understanding this actually helps you understand the whole story, so it's worth digging a little bit into. Um, Kind of the most, a very obvious one that people do land on is the thought that to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to become like it is to become someone who's now experienced evil. So it's using the word knowledge as experiential. So when I eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, I now experience evil. Many people land on that place. What's the problem with that view? Chapter 3, verse 22. God is not someone who's experienced evil. So how can eating it make me experience evil now and be like God? Because God hasn't experienced So that view can't work. It's not about experiencing evil because God's never experienced evil. So the second view, which is probably the most popular view, I think, is that the knowledge of good and evil is knowing what good and evil is. And so the idea here is that to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to become someone who now knows what good and evil is, which is to be like God who knows what good and evil is, so that makes sense. But the problem with that view is... (laughs) There is no problem with that view. What's wrong with that view? They always knew what good and evil was. God told them. To to eat the fruit is evil, to not eat the fruit is good. They always knew what it was. They hadn't experienced evil, but neither is God, so that view can't be right. But they always knew what it was, so it didn't change for them. So what's really going on here? Well, it The key to this is the word knowledge. Um, Elsewhere, the Hebrew word for knowledge has a sense of the idea of determining. 
determining. And I think this is the view that only properly makes sense of the whole thing and gives us an insight, actually, into humanity. What is it to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? It's to eat the fruit that expresses the fact that I am now a determiner of what good and evil is for me. And I now become like God, who is the determiner of what good and evil is. Once you get this, it just, it's mind-blowing. This, this is to say, Adam and Eve were made to have God determine what good and evil was and submit to it. But when Eve was tempted by the crafty one, she was tempted to decide, I will now long, no longer humbly submit to the one who determines for me what good and evil is. I will determine for myself what will be good and evil for me. And Adam betrays God and does the same. What happens here isn't, isn't just that they rebel against God, though that's what is goes on. Their rebellion against God is driven by them now becoming the captain of their own destiny, the determiner for themselves of what good and evil was. They threw off God as the lawmaker and became themselves lawmakers. Do you see? And so they become like God in this activity. This fits with 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 in the New Testament, which says that sin is breaking the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is to be, is to be lawless. It's to be outside the law. It's to be setting yourself up as your own lawmaker instead of bowing to the one who makes the laws. You, 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 this is this therefore when you hear Richard Dawkins say there's no purpose to life you make it up yourself what has he just expressed the very essence of what Adam and Eve did make up for themselves what my life will be and where I'll take it and what I'll do with it instead of humbly submitting to the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful who creates all things who knows what's best this is important to appreciate because sin in the Bible is not just doing what's evil. Sin can sometimes be doing what is morally good. Yes, we're racing to fix that. <laughs> it's very embarrassing, isn't it? But um, I was, and it's only embarrassing because I'm pointing people to. But anyway, there we are. Sin is not just doing what's evil, it's not just um, doing a wrong thing, it's actually choosing for yourself what you think wrong is. Now let me give you an illustration, it's an illustration I've used before and forgive me I haven't got many illustrations so you just have to put up with it but uh, it's the illustration of the telescope back in early centuries where uh, boats were sailing vessels and there was piracy and all of this kind of thing. You're looking through the telescope, you're on a, you're on a uh, sailing the oceans, you're looking out onto another yacht, another boat, and you see a young man on this other boat, uh, three-masted, sailing and um, scrubbing the floors, sweat pouring off him, working very hard. Uh, the, 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 the captain of the vessel comes on deck and uh, calls the man to attention and he jumps to his feet and gives a salute, or however he gives a salute, and uh, the man says, you can hear through this telescope too, the man says... Um, the man says, um, uh, you know, blood beer. 
he, he's, he's sick and he can't do his shift. Could you do his shift? And the young man says, yes, of course, I'll do whatever I need to do. And he takes on another shift. Now, the question for us is, is that young man a good man or an evil man? Well, just looking through the telescope with his, the small view you've got, he looks a good man, working hard, submitting to, taking on as much work as he can do. He looks like a fine young man. Until you pan back on the telescope and you find that the boat that he's working on is a pirate vessel. And then you determine, actually, that his, his allegiance and his energy and his faithfulness to the task of the pirate ship is itself more problematic. Better if he was a disobedient pirate. But the more obedient he is, the worse it is, you see, for him. Because of what he's working for. Now, this is a picture for us of what Genesis 3 is talking about. Many, many people in life choose the Ten Commandments to be their moral code or the Sermon on the Mount or something other that's good and wonderful. The problem isn't what they choose. The fact is that they choose to choose it is the problem. You might choose to do a morally good thing and think, therefore, before God, I'm good. But God says, no, no, the fact that you chose it without reference to me your creator, sustainer and loving father is itself the problem. That you have lived a life in rebellion, living outside of my desires for you and no reference to me is sin. Even though it shows itself in not killing, being faithful at home, loving your family. That you do all of that without regard to the God who calls you to live that way is the issue. Do you see what I'm saying? Utterly profound. And this changed Adam and Eve in profound waves. Now it's obvious that it should do so. Both naked, felt no shame, now so fig leaves in a pathetic attempt to protect themselves from each other. What's gone on there? Well, one of the things that's gone on is if I now take on the task of becoming a lawmaker and determining for myself how life will be, I become the centre of all things. And as soon as I enter into a relationship with another person, I am conscious of what I now could do with that person for my ends. I am conscious that if life's about my choices to do what I want, I could use them for my purposes. And then I realise they're thinking the same thing. And now that I realise they're doing the same thing, I realise I can't be as vulnerable as I once was. I can't be as open and trusting as I once was. I need something of a distance between us to keep myself safe from someone who can do what I know I could do. And they're looking at you doing exactly the same thing. And isn't that a picture of marriage? God's vision of marriage was the loving vulnerability and trust of one with the other, different, respecting and loving the differences, working together with a greater, deeper unity together. But over time, sin, what sin brings is a fear and awareness of what I can do in hurt of one another. And so I do need some safety and protection. I can't be as completely open as I once hoped I might be. And every marriage goes through this experience of realising exactly the same thing. They were changed and their nature was changed. 
So much so that when Eve conceives and gives birth to a child, the seed of Adam and the birth of the woman produce a child who carries this change within them. So every child born to Adam and Eve now carries what is called original sin. Their inner being is changed. It's passed on in full into the next generation. Adam and Eve are created without this bent, but with their decision to throw off the God of the universe and become for themselves the captain of their own destiny. They change their very being and are cast out of Eden to make sure that every child born to them lives outside of Eden with the same nature that you and I have. Now we can't blame Adam and Eve in one sense because every one of you proves that you would be exactly them if you were put in that context. Romans chapter 5. Every child is born with this bent. You don't, I mean I've said this before, we've all said this before, but which of us has to teach our child to lie? Which of us has to teach our child to not snatch? How many of you have to teach your kids to, to, to do wrong things? They all, I'm, I wish you'd stop sharing your toys as much as you do. No, you know, share, share, why? If you've grown up in the romanticism of the last bunch of decades, most young parents are shocked at a two-year-old. Where did this come from? I've only just loved this child. I've been careful to follow every parenting book and it's all its advice. And this two-year-old, where does it come from? Adam and Eve. You, your loins, natural. It is a bowling ball, um, a, a, a um, lawn bowl ball. I, is it, who's, who's gone lawn bowling? Yeah, okay. Um, I went lawn bowling when I was a young man. It was one of the things young men sort of with, let's go and do this really cool thing together. After that, we did cross-stitch. But we went, um, <laughs> we, went to, we went lawn bowling. And um, one of the things about a lawn bowl is that the ball is, is not uniform. It's got a weight on one side of it. So when you roll it, it's, it, it goes straight as long as there's lots of force. But as it slows down and the force disappears, it bends towards the weighted side. There is human nature. Every single one of us is born with this, this, I'm the captain of my own destiny. Sin, original sin, which is a weight in the human soul, which you can force to go straight, but when you let it go, it slides into selfishness and rebellion against God. Every one of us is born with this. We are biased. This is what we are. Now, this has been the controversy. You see, writers have tried to make sense of this over the years. And again, I've talked about this before, but I love this. Um, there were two books written a couple of, about 100 years apart. There was a book written in 1857 by a man called Ballantyne called The Coral Island. Um, and this book was written about three boys, I think from memory, who were marooned on a desert island. It was around the time of um, Robinson Crusoe kind of books. So marooned on a desert island and they, they were, they, what emerged amongst these three young men was leadership and uh, worth and dignity and care of one another and so on. Evil came into the picture but it was people who arrived on the island outside of them. These young men who just were beautiful and wonderful. Well, many decades later in 1954, a man called William Golding wrote another book called... 
Lord of the Flies. Now, who has read Lord of the Flies? Who has not read Lord of the Flies? Confess it now quickly. All right. <laughs> what I want you to do is go home, go on the internet. Can you get it on the internet? Yes, you can. Someone tells me. Go and read it. Lord of the Flies was written as a deliberate response to Coral Island. And listen to what the man said to his wife, William Golding. It'd be a good idea, he said to his wife, if I wrote a book about children on an island, children who behave the way children really would behave. And so was born Lord of the Flies. What happens when children land on an island? A bunch of children are deserted on a deserted island, left on a deserted island. What happens? They descend into savagery. There's uh, abuse and hostility and hatred and enmity. There was breaking up into different groups. The whole thing, it's a dystopian disaster. There's murder. Um, there's, there's jealousies, fear and insecurity. And what William Golding was saying, there is real human nature. Kids left on their own don't just go straight. Kids left on their own with the, without the civilising impact of society, culture and parenting who are good parents, kids on their own will roll into Lord of the Flies. The sense is, I'm trying to say, the Bible is not arbitrarily teaching original sin as if you just have to believe it. It's reporting on the way humans are and why we're the way we are. Because of our forebears who chose to rebel against the goodness of God. Marriage is intended to be no shame where a husband leaves his wife in care and sacrifice for her good, where a wife entrusts herself to the good care of a husband, where they're both naked and feel no shame, where differences aren't exploited for selfish ends, where we're able to come together and strengthen one another. And we sense in that a glory. Yes. But it's not the way it is because of the fall, chapter 3. We're born outside the garden with a propensity towards, with a brokenness that's in us. We expect great things of people because we're made in the image of God. But we always, always fail those expectations because we're fallen image bearers. In the garden, we only needed one law. In life, we need many, many laws. Don't be naive about yourself and others. Now, I know it sounds negative. We're into being positive. But look where being positive is getting us. Well, in some ways, it's getting us to a good place. You, 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 you affirm and be positive to a child because they're image bearers. They'll find it speaks to their soul. But if you don't discipline and punish and constrain... You'll raise up a child who is foolish and ill-disciplined. We need both because of the Bible's teaching on who we are. Power. We live in a world that's against the idea of power because power has become so corrupted. It's being used to such bad ends. And people are now of the mind that we ought to rid the world of all power and hierarchy because that's where evil comes from foolishness that fails to appreciate Genesis chapter 3. The problem isn't power. The problem is the person wielding the power. You know that saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? It's wrong. Power doesn't corrupt. 
power gives opportunity for the corrupting work of sin that's already there to be expressed in larger ways. Every one of you who looks on the horror of leadership and powerful people who abuse their power and is judgmental of them, we stuck you in the same position. It's not power that's the problem, it's you. Mark chapter 7, it's out of the heart, Jesus says, that all of these things come. You see, humans need to know who we are and the Bible doesn't arbitrarily teach something that we just have to believe. The Bible is touching on deep truths about who we actually are. Glorious image bearers who have fallen in sin and now profoundly broken because of it. It also, though, explains the glory of God. The danger of sin in our fallen state that's natural, the danger of sin that's part of who we are is that we tend, because of sin, to only look at ourselves. This is the disposition of our heart. But what we need to do is force ourselves to see God properly in it all. We'll tend to tell a story that makes life easier to live with ourselves. And in that story, we'll tend to underplay or blame God. It's the nature that we carry. What we need to do is force ourselves to see him. When you go through chapters 1, 2 and 3 and you force yourself to notice this, what you notice is God created. He created all things. He created things properly as our ruler. He was generous in his creation. He was good in the creation that he made. He gave us what was beautiful and abundant and rich. He gave us freedom. There was only one command. Eat whatever you like, just not that one. Eat anything. I've made it all for you. He's a good God. What should we have done? Well, what we should have done was the right thing and just obey him. But that question actually fails to appreciate the fuller obligation. The God who made all of this for us, for our joy in relationship with him, wasn't just a distant, aloof lawgiver. He was our father who loved us. There was an intimacy that he enjoyed. He walked in the cool of the garden with us. What we should have done was loved him and trusted him and so obeyed him. One of the problems of being born in sin and the nature that we now carry is that we recast our picture of God to make, it, to make us feel better about throwing him off. A little bit like Eve did when he asked, did God really say? She added to the command to make it a little worse. It tends to be our sin that creates a God that is easy to dismiss. Is he really good? I don't think so. Look what he's made. Why didn't he make it properly? And all the way, we're like Eve and Adam saying, the world you made, that caused me to do it. It's interesting, as we read it, our own propensity to sin keeps coming out in it all. Um, why is the world like it is? We're quick to blame God. Why is it like it is? Because of human sin. Because we blew it. And therefore God in his just, holy, righteous response judged us as he must. 
Why is there death in the world? Because of what we did. And God, in his just, holy, righteous response, created futility in his graciousness. It's critical to break through this sinful layer of the heart to be able to see God as we ought. He gives and he gives. And even in our rebellion, he gives. Did you notice this? Adam and Eve destroy everything God has made. And God still gives them skins to cover them in their shame. He doesn't condemn them simply He enables them to be cared for and protected. The first ancient sacrifice, if you like, for the good of us, to cover our shame and guilt. But he does more than that. And chapter 3, have a look at it now with me, verse 15, key verse, grab your Bible and read it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Please pause to consider what this is. In the midst of cursing the serpent, God makes a promise about the future where there will be a child born to Eve, an offspring that comes from her, that will destroy the serpent at cost to himself. It's an extraordinary thing. He will crush you, serpent, just as you strike him. What is this a reference to? The cross of Christ. It's just mind-blowing. God, in the midst of his judgment, promises, even for rebellious, sinful humans, salvation at cost to himself. So the Lord Jesus comes to destroy the works of Satan. John chapter 12, he casts out Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, the passage we read, destroys the one who has the power of death. He comes into the world and is struck by Satan, killed by Satan, if you like, At grace cost to himself, his death pays for you so that we can be saved from the destruction we have wrought throughout the universe. The promised child who comes. You know, um, you find yourself not believing in God? This literature is inspired. And this promise, three and a half thousand years ago, is fulfilled in an event that this author never knew about. How was it embedded there to make such sense of the whole of the Scriptures? God's hand at work. What are we? We are image bearers who have fallen. God is good and glorious at work to bring goodness in the midst of it all. He's the hero. And third, how do we now live? Well, the serpent is not dead. There is a real spiritual force at work and knowing that's important. He is crafty and he is out to undermine you. How does he do it? In exactly the same way he did in chapter 3. He will come to you and raise doubts about what God did say. He'll outright lie about what God says and says there are no consequences. There's no judgment. It doesn't really matter. And he will cause doubt about the goodness of God. That if God has said what he has said, it's only because of his interest and not yours. He's not for you. And so if you have bought into those three lies, you will find it very hard to combat sin in your life. Because you won't want to. You won't trust this God. You won't believe he's good for you. 
You won't obey the word of God because you're not sure it really says that. Let me give you a couple of examples and finish. Sexual immorality. Being unfaithful to your husband or wife or being engaged sexually outside of marriage as a single person is pleasing to the eye. It is pleasing. It's attractive. And Satan, in his craftiness, puts a bait before us but hides the hook. And so tantalises you with something that is attractive. But when you bite, when you take the hook, God's word is true. There are consequences. His word really does mean what it means. And he says it for your good. It will destroy you to go against God's word. But let me give you another side to this, the question of forgiveness. Do you know, in the midst of all of that, can I come to this God and be forgiven? Well, Satan will tempt you to say, I'm unworthy of ever being forgiven. God will never forgive a person like me. And so you need to know the scriptures. Don't let Satan's lies. You know, God delights to show mercy. He is this God who has done so much for us. You have never put yourself in a hole too deep that you can't come back and find forgiveness. He really does want to have you come back to him. And he will receive you from wherever you are. Believe his word, you see. Don't believe Satan's lies. Brothers and sisters, notice the tendency of our father and mother to doubt the word of God, to doubt the goodness of God, to no longer trust God, to outright hear the lies and know the word of God in response that you might respond properly to this God who is so good. We are image bearers who have fallen. God really is the good God. He is worthy of our trust. And so our task together is to learn his word, know his word, that we can combat the tendency in us to rebel against this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask please that this might all be true for us, that we might know your word, that we might have deep insight into what it says, that please we might know your goodness in the midst of it all, that we can trust you, that you are for us. And please help us therefore be able to be equipped to stand, to live lives that please and honour you in all holiness and righteousness. Help us to stand against the temptations that Satan brings our way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.